please, to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. <clears throat> Good to see all of you there here. Good to have all of you here. How many of you have a real Bible? <laughs> How many have a Bible on a... I, 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 yeah, I'm one of these. It's all different, isn't it? I've learned to use this. Um, it's very, very helpful. <clears throat> but I love hearing the pages open. How many understand what I'm saying? Pretty cool. <clears throat> Romans chapter 14. I am dealing with something this morning. I don't know what it is. And I'm, I, I, I hit a wall. I don't know what's going on. So hopefully the text will be real and His Word will be clearly understood this morning despite these things. The Bible says in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he might eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not regarded is not to regard with contempt the one who does not. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. First of all, I want to just go through the text quickly, and then we'll give the sense of it as we study along. Accept the one who is weak. That's talking about younger Christians that are weak in the faith. It's not talking those that are feeble as in physically. It's talking spiritually. But we are to be accepting them and loving them and serving them and helping them and being with them, basically friending them, amen, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Let me ask you, do mature Christians have different opinions and different, shall we say, convictions and standards as weaker Christians? Yes or no? Yes. Does that make one better than the other? Absolutely not. And that's what this text is talking about. Remember, we've just gone through chapter 13, which, which is all saturated in love and how that we are to love one another. Always love one another. Now he is saying this is how it is in practice. It's funny, this next passage, this next verse, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. How many love that verse? <laughs> Man, I, I tell you what, that verse is pretty powerful because we know what that's talking about, right? Or do we? It is reminiscence of Paul when he says, I will not eat meat offered to idols. Why? So I don't want to offend the weaker brother. Even though in Christian maturity, there's nothing wrong with eating a fat, thick, rare steak or done medium well. I don't know. I don't know where you're at. <laughs> if you're godly, it's medium rare. <laughs> Regardless, there's nothing sinful about it. We just read in the passage of Scripture in 1 John that there's sin unto death and there's sin. And all unrighteousness is sin, right? How many of you would agree that there, in this life, there is not a lack of sin. How many would agree that, you know, day after day, we actually come up with different ways of sinning? How many would agree with that? We do. The reality is, there's sin in this world. But there's reality that there is a pompous attitude within some mature Christians that everything you do is sin. Some people make wearing slacks a sin. 
many know what I'm talking about? Some would say that if your hair is on your ears, it's a sin. You know, we got sin to deal with. We don't need to make up more ones like that. Amen. Those things aren't sin, by the way. Do you realize that we could meet on Monday and not be sinning? We could not have Sunday school and not be sinning. The one who eats, verse 3, is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. Why? Why is it that the weaker Christians shouldn't be looking at the stronger Christ, or the mature Christians and say, you guys are bad because you're doing this. And the strong guys looking at the younger guys aren't supposed to say, you guys are dumb because of this. Why is that true? Isn't that what the text is saying? It is. The guy that's eating a steak doesn't look down at the guy that's eating corn. By the way, they're both really good. And they're made for us to eat. By God. So the one that's eating the meat shouldn't be chastising the one that's eating and, 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 and looking at him with contempt that's eating vegetables. And the one who's eating at vegetables isn't to look at the guy that's eating steak and say, you heathen! But let me ask you, isn't that exactly what Christians do? If If we had a lady from the red light, red light district dressed like she like she would normally dress, come in and sit in the front seat, how many of us would gasp? This is where she needs to be. Amen. We look at people and we judge them based on their looks, on what they do, what they say. And that's un understandable. The reality is we put too many people going to hell and it's not our business to do that. We do not judge weaker Christians. Weaker Christians don't judge mature Christians. Mature Christians don't judge weaker Christians. Why? Because God accepts and loves them all. And that's all that matters. And that's what the text is saying. God has accepted him. The next verse, verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? This is God's servant, not yours. Who do you think you are? To his own master, he stands and falls. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what God thinks. Amen? He will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Folks, this passage of Scripture, how many of you have ever been in a crazy fundamental church. Anybody? <clears throat> Unfortunately, what I mean by that is this. There was a church when I was growing up. There was a church. It wasn't the church I went to. but There was a church that would hand ladies a dress to change their clothes before they come to service. I don't hear any gasping. Folks, is that normal? There's a problem with not only clergy laity, but there's a problem within the church that, well, I'm mature, I know what I'm doing. And we look at others with contempt both ways. 
This is not talking about outright sin. Outright sin is not the only danger to a church's spiritual health and unity. And it is, by the way. Amen. That's why God gave us, and we'll, we'll find this later, that's why God gave us church discipline, right? Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians, I think it's 5. Although they are not sin in themselves, these things that we're talking about, eating meat, eating vegetables, um, those things are not sin in and of themselves. Certainly attitudes and behaviors can destroy fellowship and fruitfulness. And they have crippled the work. They've crippled the witness. And they crippled the unity of countless congregations throughout church history. These problems are caused by differences between Christians over matters that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. In other words, they're outside of the dogma of being sin. Does that make sense? What are some of those things? I've given you a couple. Hair length is some. Tattoos may be another one. Alcohol can be one. Now, is it wrong? Is it a sin to be drunk, according to the text? Yes. But it doesn't talk about that with drinking wine or drinking alcohol of some sort. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying these are what people would call gray areas. How many of you have ever lived in gray areas? You know what I'm talking about. Gray areas. They're all over. Some people think it's sin to vote for a wrong party. And you could probably get my arm to twist that well, but it's still not. It's not. Listen, guys, by the way, all politicians in some sense are crooked and about themselves. The reality is we live, it's, it's easy to live in a black and white, white life, is it not? It's hard when these gray areas come in. And therefore, we make convictions, don't we? How many of you have made convictions on drinking? Just some kind of conviction. Right, I'm going to use Mr. Zarin. Mr. Zarin used to be a drunkard. He now has a conviction that I will not even touch the stuff. That's his conviction. Praise the Lord for that. But there's another conviction that, you know what? Drunkenness is sin, but drinking wine is not. The Bible talks about drinking wine. There's arguments made for, um, <clears throat> when, well, for sure, not even an argument. When Paul told Timothy to drink wine for your stomach's sake. What does that mean? The alcohol that's used, the wine that's talked about in Scripture, constantly talking about these things of wine. What is that? Well, sometimes it's alcoholic, sometimes it's not. It's a gray area. Being consumed by it is not a gray area. But that goes with Twix bars too. Right? Personal preferences, historic traditions, opinions, even personal convictions all fall under this heading that we're dealing with in this text. These are gray areas. By the way, you should have convictions. And those convictions should be biblically based. But if they are gray areas, don't you dare accuse somebody of being wicked if they don't follow your convictions. Those are yours. Does that make sense? It's not black and white in Scripture. Even in small churches, there are often uh, are, there are considerable differences today. We have Noble. Noble, can you raise your hand? See, his hand isn't even as high as your head's. He's a young man. You know what? He thinks differently than Mr. Zarin does. True? They're going to do different things. And Mr. Zarin could, I'm not saying, I hope you don't mind me using Mr. Zarin. 
You've never told me that, so it's okay. Mr. He's going to look at, man, he's, he's being sinful. No, he's just being a boy. And, and, and Noble's going to, he's driving a car. That's sinful. Why? Because he can't. Right? How many see the illustration? It's exactly what this is. There's, there's education, no difference. There's age differences. There's educational differences. How many have, how many have ever read Edwards, uh, the works of Jonathan Edwards? It's a book about that thick. You start reading it, you will put it away very quickly. Because there are very few seminarians that can read it and understand it, let alone us common folks, right? The reality is, you can tell when someone has education because of the wordings that they use, and it's like, wow, where did that come from? I have no idea what he's talking about. There are maturity issues. There are uh, maturity issues. What does that mean? My, my wife thinks I have a maturity issue. But I think she likes it. Because you're a boy that will never grow up. In some ways. But we do. We have maturity issues, don't we? Listen, we're not catching Mr. Gaiman running in the church. Right? But there's maturity issues. It's not sin. Now, it's sin to disobey, but it's not sin or... Do you get that? There are personality differences. There are cultural differences. There are religious backgrounds differences. You all came from different churches or different backgrounds of religious and secular things. Some members have come from a long line of evangelicals. MacArthur says it this way, some of those families may have heritage of strict legalism, while others have one of considerable openness and freedom. Some members may have been accustomed to highly liturgical worship, others to worship that is largely unstructured and spontaneous. Some may have heard the gospel and have been exposed to biblical teaching for many years, while others may have heard the true gospel only recently and understand only its bare essentials. Some have been converted out of paganism, out of cults, liberal Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, Judaism, humanism, or simply an uh, agnostic, religious indifference. Diversity can strengthen a local congregation. Amen? I will tell you this. If you put Mr. Game and myself side by side and express the greatness of their personalities, you will see black and white. And they're neither of them are sin or wrong. Does that make sense? You see, the greatest church in the world was a church that was filling up with all different people of all different everythings. But they all loved the Lord greatly. <clears throat> the church, if focused on Christ, can be extremely different from each other, each member. But that's exactly what God wants. The Lord did not plan for His church to be divided into hundreds of varieties based on distinctivenesses of persons' preferences and traditions that have no ground in Scripture. But for obvious reason, diversity within a congregation can easily be used by the unredeemed flesh and by Satan to create division and discord, even hatred and animosity. Well, that's not my conviction. That's not how we do it. It doesn't matter. Do you love the Lord? Do we seek His face? 
It was Paul's abiding concern that every Christian have a deep desire for preserving Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, the unity of the spirit of bond and the bond of peace. Colossians chapter 3, on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Do we love one another? Chapter 13 of Romans, love each other. You ever heard of deferences? Or how to have deference with one another? What does that mean to have deference with one another? Listen, if someone sins, we need to confront them. If someone likes charl broiled steak, I know it's hard, but we got to love them. Right? It doesn't matter. That's an opinion, that's a taste. Our Lord expressed the same desire in John chapter 13. Love one another even as I have loved you. Okay, do you think God thinks we're immature? If rolling eyes was a thing, God would have rolling eyes all the time. Are you kidding me? In a sense. We are to love one another even as Christ loved us, that you love also, that you also love one another. He says it twice. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You are a child of God when you love each other. Do we love each other? It is the concern he voiced in his high priestly prayer to his father on behalf of of those who belong to Him by faith, they, that they may all be one, even as though Father art in me and I in thee. And they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. God wants all facets of all people for His glory is the idea. There shouldn't be a black church and a white church. Amen? There shouldn't be this church and that church. We should all be the church. The problem is, so many gray areas has affected it. Now, there is truth that there are different denominations. I'm not saying there shouldn't be different denominations. There will always be on this earth before Christ comes different denominations. How many understand that? And there should be because we cannot serve God knowing that they're preaching wrong theology. Amen. Theology matters. This is not talking about theology. But there will be distinctions between a Lutheran church and a Baptist church. Between a Presbyterian church and a community church. Now, some of those differences are very small, but some are very big. I would say the biggest difference between denominations theologically today is the difference between a covenant theological mindset and a dispensational, dispensational theological mindset. Does that make sense? And those things matter. I'm not saying we should ever compromise those things. But that's not what this is talking about. In the early church, many Jews who came to faith in Christ could not bring themselves to discard the ceremonial laws and all the things that made them Jewish. The rites and prohibitions the Lord Himself had instituted in the Old Covenant. They still felt compelled, for example, to comply with the Mosaic dietary laws. Today, they still cannot have a bacon double cheeseburger. They can't. They won't. They think it's a sin. Folks, they are not sin. But the effects might not be so great. <laughs> the Jews hated the Gentiles there was a problem. Why do you think Paul is now bringing up these things to the Romans? 
That's the, that's the very issue. That's the very issue. Other believers, both Jewish and Gentiles, understood and exercised their freedom in Christ. On the other hand, there were many converted Gentiles that had been just as strongly steeped in pagan rituals and customs from false gods, and they felt repulsed by anything remotely connected to those evils. Many Gentiles, for example, could not bring themselves to eat meat that had been offered to a pagan deity, and then it was sold in the marketplace. But despite all those differences, there were believers, both Jews and Gentiles, that truly understood their freedom in Christ. Mature Jewish believers realized that under the new covenant in Christ, the ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic law were no longer valid. Why? Jesus Christ had become their righteousness. Amen. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ has become your righteousness if you're truly born again. Mature believing Gentiles understood that idolatry was a spiritual evil and had no effect on anything physical, such like meat, that may have been used in idolatrous worship. It's just a, just a hunk of meat has no evil spirit living within it. But the problem was, there were people who were heavily into the pagan nonsense that was in Rome. They worshipped as they were uh, having prostitutes. That was their worship. It was wicked. Matter of fact, they would get drunk and have multiple women publicly in front of everybody. That big orgies going on. Now, now for those young, young immature Christians in the Roman church, would you want anything to do with the meat that was offered to that stuff? No way. But it wasn't a sin to eat it. That's why Paul was very clear when he said, listen, I can eat meat offered to idols, but... I won't do it. Does that make sense? I won't do it. Those who were strong, still strongly influenced favorably or unfavorably by their former, former religious beliefs, either the Jews with Judaism or the Gentiles with paganism, when, when they were first saved, first of all, they, they were very weak. And so anything with that affected them. That's why we have the Judaizers going to Asia Minor and going into the churches that Paul had just left and said, hey guys, you can't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You still need to be circumcised. By the way, this comes to a theological issue. If Paul vehemently was screaming at the Jews... And all the disciples got together in Acts chapter 12 and 13 area. And they said, you know what? No, you don't have to be circumcised to be a believer. How many agree that that happened? Then why in the world are people still infant baptizing? That's how you say, well, what in the world? Here's the, here's the reality. Infant baptizing replaced circumcision by covenant theologians. Therefore, if you look at it and understand that they will, they will absolutely say, yeah, because they're following Judaic law and bringing them into the covenant by circumcising them. Now they're doing it by baptizing them. Jesus, Paul, the Bible is clear circumcision is not required for true salvation. Well, just connect the dots. <clears throat> the liberated believer is tempted to look upon legalistic brother as being too rigid and restricted to be of any use to the Lord. Let me ask you, do legalists, are they any use to the Lord? 
if they set their standards super high, will the, are there people that they can minister that you and I cannot? Yes or no? How many love legalism? How many hate legalism? Reality is, <clears throat> there is a gray area that we have to deal with. How do we deal with it? The Bible says, in these gray areas, do not look at them with contempt. Now let me ask you, do you that don't wear dresses because you think it's an irrelevant thing, see those that make you wear dresses with contempt or not? I'm asking you. Do you see men that have this long flowing hair? You look at them with contempt because they have long hair. Do you look at them that way? Usually I would say we do. Is that what this is talking about? Now, there's one verse in all the Bible about the hair thing that you can go to. Anybody know where, that there's a verse in the Bible about that? The Bible says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Here's the problem. What constitutes long hair? Well, in our society, well, let's just do this. Rodney, if you look at Rodney, what constitutes long hair? Right? The reality is we're going we're gonna to struggle with this and we're going to sit there and laugh at them, make fun of them, and have contempt for them. And the Bible says, stop it! Stop it! Why? God saved them. Leave them alone. If it's not sin, stop it! The liberated believer is tempted to look upon the legalistic brother as being too rigid and restricted to be any of use to the Lord. The legalist, on the other hand, is tempted to think of the liberated brother as being too freewheeling and undisciplined to serve Christ effectively. This is the root of disunity right there. In this passage in Romans chapter 14, 1 through 12, the apostle speaks to both types of believers with these attitudes. The text starts out, and by the way, I will say this, I'm going to say this over and over again. One of my favorite professors and a man that uh, mentored me when I was a teenager at college and taught me how to preach, he says it this way. He says, I, this is, he's talking about him, he's at a, a mega church now as one of the pastors. And I mean, there's every, but every culture, everything's there. And in dealing with coming out of legalism, quote-unquote, where I went to school, where he taught me, he says it this way. In regards to legalists, he says, and what legalists, I'm not talking about works salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about convictions, personal convictions and opinions. He says, I love what fundamentalists love but I don't hate what they don't, what they hate. Does that make sense? I love what they love. What do they love? They love the Bible. They love the truth. They love the preaching of the word. They love singing songs to the Lord. They love the Lord. I love what I, they love, but I don't hate what they hate. Those gray areas, I'm not going to sit there and hate them over that. You and I don't know. We just need to be honest. Amen. The Bible says it this way, accept the one who is weak. The word here, accept, in this, it, 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 it's a command. It's a command. Paul is commanding that strong believers accept, embrace, love, encourage, be friends with, be a part of, be memberships in the same church with weak believers. Amen? That's what the Bible says. Accept them. The meaning is clearly seen in Acts chapter 28 when they had when they had been brought safely through, 
<coughs> the Mediterranean Sea. Then they found an island they, that is called Malta. Do you remember Malta? The natives were there. And the natives did what? They said, hey guys, we're with you. Come on. And they brought them all together. And then they said, because they received us all, they basically warmed us and fed us. What's that mean? They brought them into their close relationship. We need to do the same thing. Now, we might totally disagree with what they were doing. That's okay to disagree. This country is falling apart because we don't think it's okay to disagree. True? So does a church. Yeah, I don't agree with that. We don't practice that. But they still love the Lord. Get along. They received us all, the text says. <clears throat> Romans 15, <clears throat> a little bit later, the Bible says, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ accepted us. Think of all the nonsense we did and continue to do, and God still loves us. Paul was not speaking. This is the Bible. The text says, is weak in the faith. The faith. Paul was not speaking of spiritual trust or faithfulness, but of understanding the full truth of the gospel message. A better rendering might be one who is weak in the faith. The, this, th that is clearly, apostle, clearly the apostles' meeting when he admonishes the Colossians to continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast in Colossians and in Titus. Paul was not speaking of theological compromise. It is of grave importance that theology is preached from the pulpit. Amen. It is not okay to be milquetoast in theology. Amen. It is not okay to be, to, uh, to be fuddy-duddy as a theologian. Amen. It is not okay to be weak when proclaiming God's Word. That's not what we're talking about. That being said, we must stand firm, strong, and never flinch when it comes to orthodoxy. That is not what the text is talking about. Do we understand that? That's very important. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 1 that even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's black and white. That's, there's no gray area there. He's not talking about sin. Although personal sin is committed every day by every human being, there's no compromise accepting or overlooking believers' sins. Because we have inherited a sin nature from Adam. We commit personal sins all the time. Those sins must be dealt with. Christian, do you know you still need to be confessing your sins before God? Hello? We do. We sin daily. That is not what this is talking about. Once we confess our personal sins to God and ask forgiveness, we are restored to perfect fellowship and communion with Him. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 6, 23, Revelation 20, verse, all these things, thankfully, all sin, inherited sin, imputed sin, personal sin, all of them have been crucified on the cross of Christ. We have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Further along, the Bible says in that text, I have decided to deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do, not know, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Clean out the leaven. Well, what's that talking about? It's not talking about... We're not talking about sin here, but this text is. Matthew chapter 18, when a Christian in your church sins, you talk to him about it. If he refuses, you bring someone else and talk to him about it. If he refuses, you put it on Facebook. No, that's not what it says. You bring it to the church. If he refuses to hear you, what do you do? 
you kick him out. There's a way to take care of sin in the church. The problem is we do not know how to take care of differences within the church on gray areas. In that regard, he sternly warned the Galatians about this sin issue. That you, Acts chapter 15, no, this absolutely no, no theology. It's not a theological gray area. It's not a sin gray area. This is a gray area of personal preference, tradition, opinions. Paul was not speaking of theological error. He was not speaking of sinning error. He was speaking of believers who are weak in their understanding of and living out their true faith in Christ Jesus. Believers are to be fully and lovingly accepted by those who are spiritually mature. Amen. And those that are free in Christ must be loved also by the weak. That's the text. It is not that believers' freedom in Christ should never be discussed with Christians who are still under bondage to some type of religious compulsion or restraint, but that such discussion would never be the purpose of passing judgment on undeveloped but sincere opinions. Here's the reality. Do you remember when Paul came back the last time to Jerusalem? He paid for people to go to the temple. Do you remember that? Why? It mattered to them. It was not a sin issue. It was not a theological issue. It was an issue that their tradition gave. Therefore, he wasn't going to take a stand on it. Matter of fact, he just gave it to them and said, here, get out, go, go deal with it. You need to deal with it. The Bible says, and truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Reality, folks, all of us are immature in Christ. Did you hear that? All of us, in a sense, are immature in Christ. I can think of the most mature Christian I know. Wonderful friend of mine. Love him to death. Great mentor. He will tell you over and over again, the more I understand Scripture, the more I realize I don't know it. Amen? We are all mature in one sense. The Bible says every one of us were mature when we were first saved. Amen. We were all there. Truly, I say to you, unless you were converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The only way you're going to be, the only way you're going to be spend eternity with Christ is to be saved. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such, in, such a child in my name receives me. But whosoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it were better that a what? A millstone were hung around his neck and he's thrown into the depths of the sea. Are you kidding me? This is such a blow to mature Christianity. Saying that, listen, don't you dare look down your nose at them. Don't you dare hinder them. And if you do, you're off. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, he goes on to say. I'm not going to read it all. Matthew chapter 18. Unbelievable. Paul warned the church of Galatia. He says, you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Amen. Yes, you do have freedom to do things in this life. But don't you dare make it a, ah, I can, so I will. That's exactly what Paul said not to do. I had a big discussion on the alcohol issue with a young man that was in the car with me. He said, how come you guys don't have real wine in your church? I said, well, a couple reasons. Can you think of a couple reasons you might not have alcohol when you have communion? By the way, they do in many churches. I don't know if you know that. Why do we not do that here? There are two reasons that I can give you. Number one, we're trying to make the symbols as close to biblical as possible. And leaven is a picture of sin usually in the text. That's one. Is that a weak one? Sure, it can be. 
But I will tell you this, we know for a fact that Jesus Christ, when he was at the, the first communion, the first Lord's Supper, it, was not, it had to be unleavened bread. It had to. Because that was the law. Secondly, how many of you, if you had a father that was a drunk, he got saved? He stopped drinking. Except every time he came to church for communion, he'd get his nip. How well do you think that would work? It wouldn't. It wouldn't. I come from a long line of drunkards. Three of my uncles driving down the river road, rolled their car, truck, smashed in the hood. They were going from bar to bar in a snowstorm. God derailed them, threw them off in the ditch, upside down with the hood of the tr or the roof of the truck crushed down on them. Do you know what they did? They got on their back, pushed the roof back up, got it out of the ditch, and went to the next bar. Folks, they don't need Christians to help them with that. I don't drink personally because of that and because I, th there is no way I want to be a stumbling block to anybody. Ever. Ever. The apostle urged the church in Thessalonica on the one hand to admonish the unruly, that is, to warn believers who think they are strong and who continually take their freedom to its limits. Not in order to serve and please the Lord. Isn't that what we're here to do? Do you really love them? Then serve them. You're not serving them by aiding and abetting them. Right? Not in order to serve and please the Lord, but to serve and please themselves is what, they were what Paul is talking about. In the same verse, he then urges them who are generally strong, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. That is, use their freedom to serve the Lord by serving His people who are in special need of help. I am writing to you fathers, the text goes on, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you children because you know the Father. Right there, He breaks up the different people in the church. I'm writing to all of you. All of you. Why? You love the Lord. The question is, for you that are mature, do you love yourself more than you love the Lord, which in turn means you love others. You see, it's a love issue. He reminds all of them their spiritual strength comes from knowing God and from His Word abiding in them. In Romans chapter 4, the rest of the or 14, the rest of the text, all believers must accept all believers. Why? Because God accepts them. Because the Lord takes care of them. Because the Lord is sovereign in each believer's life because the Lord alone will judge each believer. I will tell you this. You can, and we're all in different levels. By the way, every one of you can teach every one of you. Do you understand that? I don't care if you're new in the faith or old in the faith. All of you can teach each other something. Does that make sense? The problem is we won't learn anything if we look down our noses and say, oh, you're just an immature person or, oh, you're just a freedom-loving guy and, 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 and willy-nilly with all these gray areas. Either way you're going, you're not listening and we're not growing together in the Lord. I will tell you one of the greatest things I have been able to do is go to a mega church. You say, what in the world? How many have ever been to a mega church? These megachurches, <clears throat> there are bad ones. I will attest to that. But there's one thing that's very unique in them, and, and the one that I have gone to, and I, I appreciate. Each, I mean, they, they, 
there are guys coming in with, that would make Mr. T's face blush with all the jewelry they have in their face. How many understand that? I mean, it's just coated with metal. There, it, it, there's more writing on someone's body than on, on a newspaper in a year. And do you know what? They love each other. Doesn't matter. They love each other. I'm going to get this. They're not shying away. They're not, oh, look who's coming down the street. I better go to the other side because I don't want to talk to them. They're a fruitcake. There's none of that. God accepts the mature. God accepts the weak. Doesn't matter. He accepts both. He loves both. We are to also. The one man who has faith may eat all things. That means the meat issue, and we don't have time to deal with all that. But we get it, right? The one who is, the one who is, who is strong eats meat. The one who is weak eats vegetables. You can't look down each other's nose on each other, or you're never going to grow together. You're never going to glorify God like you could have. We need to understand some of these things are, are beyond the scope of sin or theological issues. <clears throat> the Christians, you are aware, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Do you remember that passage? It talks about you are as dead man walking about, pleasing Satan, did everything according to the flesh. Do you remember the text? Then he says, you were once one of these. This is who you were. You came from here. Listen, how many know how many angels dance on the head of a pin? Oh, come on, you should all know that, right? You're all mature. How many could care less? Let me ask you this, how many of you want to understand the Trinity better? You know what? You're going to need to talk to other people about that, back and forth. What about this verse? What about that verse? What about this verse? And help each other. You know what? There are going to, people, there are going to be people in that class that are going to look at you, Trinity? What? what? I never heard of it. And you're going to go, oh! Get thee behind me, Satan. Or you're going to say, hey, let's go through the text and work with this together. Amen? A church will never grow if it's pompous, arrogance, brats sitting in the pews. That's just the honest truth. Let no, let now, no one, let not him who eats, regard with contempt the weak who doesn't eat. That's basically looking down their nose, looking down on someone being as a nothing or less than nothing. It means to view them with utter disdain and abhorrence. This is the problem with many Jews of that day who viewed the Gentiles with contempt all the time. Now, do you think a lot of Christians view other Christians with contempt? Maybe, maybe not. But what is true with many Christians, if not all, is that Christians many times feel spiritually superior to other Christians. Do we not? I have the truth. You don't. You know, it's, it's the trouser, or what is that? The, what are those called? Thank you. It's the suspender issue, right? I'm, no, I'm somebody, you're nobody. We teach our young people on Wednesday nights theology, and I'm amazed at some of the questions they come up. I have learned from them as they have learned from me. That's what a church should be. Have we forgotten? You see, what happens is most Christians, they tend to talk down to them. 
They roll their eyes at their elementary discussions, and in the end, pride, destroy them. pride destroys them. Are we like this? Have we forgotten that we also were elementary and immature? Have we not understood? Listen, if you don't think you're immature, you haven't read the Bible. God is the one that grew us in His grace. What have we, what are we to boast about? True mature Christians focus on loving God and serving others. How are we serving others when we view them with somewhat content? Contempt. Reality, if you think you are mature, if you think you are mature, you're a child. For the more you study Scripture, the more you realize you know really nothing. I'll say this, mature Christians need to grow up. Think about that. Then he goes on and says, Let not him who does not eat judge who eats. It comes to the legalist. The term judge, it's the same thing. It's, it's you, ah, you sinner, you're guilty of a crime because you were out after 10 p.m. Oh, you Satan incarnate. What? Regard with contempt and judges are essentially they're, they're synonymous. MacArthur states it this way, in both cases, one type of person disdains the other and both are wrong. The strong member contemptibly considers the weak member to be a legalistic and self-righteous bigot. And the weak member judges the strong member to be irresponsible at best and maybe unsaved at worst because he's doing those things. Although the phrase God has accepted and directly flows from him who eats, both the strong and the weak God accepts. It's not just one or the other. He accepts both. God himself does not make an issue of such things. A dear mentor of mine says it, like I said before, I love what fundamentalists love, but I do not hate what they hate. Both strong and weak are acceptable by and fellowship with the Lord. If we cannot accept each other, that is sin. That's what's sin. The Lord make each other stand. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls. Listen, it's not up to you. It's up to God. Amen. It's up to God. A believer who is strong about matters that are not doctrinal or moral and that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture is just as much in need of God's strength as the one who is weak. We are all weak in the sense that everything good and righteous we possess is a gift of God. Never the product of our own wisdom or efforts, but the remaining influence of the flesh often tempts liberated believers to think that legalists are so rigid and self-righteous that they sacrifice not only much personal joy, but also limit their usefulness to the Lord. Being well aware of those tendencies, Paul confronts both groups. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To judge the weak, to judge the, the mature. It is to his own master, namely Jesus Christ, that each believer stands or falls. <clears throat> Jesus guarantees our, our citizenship. The Bible says, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Jude says, him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Hebrews says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives and makes intercession for them. Philippians, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And Peter they are protected by the power of God through faith. Man, all those passages tell us it doesn't matter if you're mature or weak. You are all God's children. Amen? Now, 
should we be happy in our immature state? Yes or no? No. It takes growth, right? We need to encourage each other to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, would it be true that we as a church have been arrogant towards immaturity? Would it be true that we have been arrogant in others' maturity, accusing them of sin when it really isn't, have anything to do with sin? Do we treat others as we should, in essence? I pray that we are doing that. I pray that we are. I'll never forget sitting at a pizza ranch with one of my mentors who is 30 years older than I am and knows more. So much scripture. I had just written or just preached a message on Romans chapter 8, I think, or 7, 6 through 8. 6 through 8 was a conversation, and I said, hey, can you, he never says should in any of that. And he took back, what? And he starts reading it. This is the guy that taught me the most I've ever learned. He said, I've never seen it. Well, it must just be understood. No, let's not go there. He said, you know what? That's really good. We need to, I, need to, I need to start thinking about that. He did not come to that lunch and look at me as some pencil neck, immature little snot-nosed kid. He looked at me as a Christian, and he said in his mind, how can I learn from him? We go up to these guys, these gurus, and oh, I'm going to learn a lot from them because we think they're mature. We learn from each other. We cannot be in a state where we look down our noses on either one, mature or immature. I'll close with, with the book, <clears throat> with Psalm chapter 9. The Bible says this, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in shadow of the Almighty. I will say the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you, make, you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand and it shall not approach you. You will only look on your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in your hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will, treat, you will tread upon the lion and cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Why? Because he has loved me and therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. Folks, we are believers. Amen? As believers, we are truly weak before an almighty God. It is only his strength that keeps us and the one that keeps us, keeps all of us. The more mature, the weak, all of them. Amen? Do we treat one another 
like Christ treated us. We don't. We need to work on that. We need to help each other. We need to serve each other. All right, this passage of Scripture, we're done, we're completed. This passage of Scripture is a difficult passage for me. Very difficult when dealing with gray issues. And if we're going to be honest, probably all of us, it's difficult with. Don't ever forget, do we love the Lord or do we love self? With that one question, this all gets answered. Because if we love the Lord, we will love others and serve them, not mock them. Love them, not hate on them. Rejoice with them, weep with them. But please, don't make fun of them. Don't rail on them. The point at hand needs to go back to us, not to others. As our mom would say, right? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this passage of text. As difficult as it may be, it's obviously important to you that we live in a way of serving you in every aspect of that way. Which means, dear Lord, we never look down at others, but are always trying to serve them by building them up in you. And I pray, dear Lord, that that would be our mantra everywhere we go. How can I serve them? How can I help them um, <clears throat> know more about you? Because we love them. And the reason we love them is because you first loved us. Dear Lord, I pray that we will love one another. No matter their background, no matter their maturity level, we love them because they love you. And that makes us brothers and sisters in you. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done. Help us to have a great week serving others in our workplace, our play place, and our rest. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful evening.